Welcome to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about innovation and how we can reimagine Canada's economy in this time of unprecedented change. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. In today's conversation, I wanted to learn how our governments are performing behind the scenes of the COVID-19 crisis. We know they're working at warp speed to get billions of dollars to Canadians, almost entirely through digital channels. But what can digital governments do beyond that? How can they deliver all public services at the speed of digital and with the smarts of digital? And beyond the crisis, how can they build a new public digital platform on which to build a new era of government, smarter government, and a better economy? We'll be joined by Hillary Hartley, Ontario's first chief digital officer. In that role, she's at the forefront of the effort to transform Canada's second largest government with a simple mantra, simpler, faster, better. Hillary was also the co-founder of 18F, the U.S. Digital Services Agency under President Obama. We'll also be joined by Alex Benet, a partner with KPMG, who focuses on digital and government solutions, and is one of Canada's leading thinkers on the reimagination of the public square. Alex was previously Chief Information Officer for the Government of Canada and named one of the world's 100 most influential people in digital government. I couldn't think of two more credible leaders on the front lines of this crisis who can shed light on what's really happening in our governments and what lies ahead. I'm struck by how much all of us are using government services and learning about those limitations of government. I was thinking last night as I was ordering uh, sushi through my Skip app uh, and went through frustrations that probably a lot of people are going through, and this is hardly a complaint given what's going on in the world, but it was jammed. And it was only after I placed my order that the app told me the place was actually closed. So I had to find another place and another place. And I thought, you know, if a government site did that, if they caused that kind of user frustration, it would probably be all over Twitter. So I think we need to all be a little more forgiving of what service providers, public and private, are up against and need to probably tolerate a bit more testing and failure, which is what's really critical in digital progress. Alex and Hillary, I just want to draw you in and get a bit more of your experience. Maybe tell us a story of what you've been up against. Thanks, John. One of the first things that we got going actually was a self-assessment checker. The Alberta Health Services was, I think, one of the first provinces to get a self-assessment site online. And there was quick conversation among several provinces about how to how to get something up that was tailored to the needs of our specific communities, but also our uh, specific medical officers, honestly. And so we reached out to the Alberta Health Services team to ask them about their code. They, they shared the code with our team. And within uh, three days, our team had quickly launched a local version of a self-assessment tool. And from there, we had our own tool developed in-house and ready to go. And it's become a really important part of the provincial response. And, and you're doing all this from home, I assume. Most of your teams, all of your teams are at home. How, how's that been? Our team was uh, uniquely suited to it because one of the things that I'd actually started as a pretty selfish recruiting idea early on was you know, to allow us to hire the best and brightest from across Ontario. We really have put a focus on our team of making sure that we're, we act like a distributed team. And uh, so we were able to flip a switch almost overnight in terms of just sort of complying with the Secretary of Cabinet's memo that, that went out one of those first weekends saying we need to start working at home. 
And yeah, we've been we've been a fully distributed team since that first day. Distributed teams is such a great term. Alex, how's the crisis been so far for you in terms of your engagement with government as as a citizen? I think what's been interesting to see, we're seeing all the excuses, frankly, that used to exist why we couldn't do digital first. You're seeing new programs be put online faster. And, and there's a reason for that. It's because the underlying business is simpler. EI has tens of thousands of rules. CERB has a handful. So you're seeing governments, I think, both like a programmatic perspective and a technological perspective, just realize that digital first is the way to go now. Uh, and now we're realizing, I think, across the country that maybe there are regions that are not connected, and that's hurting our efforts to either fight the virus or provide services. And I hope we use this as a, as a bit of a catalyst as a citizen to make sure that every single citizen has access to the internet so that we can move to virtual education if we have to, or telemedicine or other things. Like These are all great, amazing strides, unfortunately, done in the last six weeks because of a crisis. In so many different ways in this crisis, we're seeing the future advance to us, and we're seeing all the opportunities for digital government. I want to spend the next part of the conversation talking about how governments have been performing in this crisis. Alex, let me turn to you with this. Maybe give us a rating on a scale of one to 10 in terms of what you think Canadians would say about their digital experience over the last month with government. Like, And I don't mean to give you a political answer, but I think every Canadian will have a different experience. I think what I did see consistently for the first time is positive feedback, whether you were federal, provincial, or municipal governments putting things online, you saw an onslaught of a positive reaction, the negative reaction, which I know from experience is one of the fears that many senior public servants have is that we're going to put this thing out there and it's going to fail. But when if you keep it simple, and to Hillary's earlier point, you iterate and you make it really transparent that you're trying, people tend to react positively. So I think if you were to ask that question pre-COVID, Canadians would have a much lower rating. I think, you know, they're probably starting to see that they can, there can be things that can be done online from government that is positive. But the top complaint in the U.S. and Britain and, and other markets is the digital experience, where there's a creaky system. Hilary, I wonder if you can tell us a bit about the foundations, because this doesn't happen with the flip of a switch. This has been built up over time. Uh, it's kind of interesting, maybe even ironic, that 2019 was the year of delivery for the Ontario government. Tell us what that allowed the public service in Ontario to do when the crisis hit. I think one of the biggest things that we are learning through this is the, the importance and the necessity of data. And so this period of time has really shown us, I think, where we need to focus our efforts around some data and where we need to focus our efforts on, uh, you know, getting certain things automated and into machine readable formats and, you know, how the importance of all of this stuff that, as you said, kind of take for granted sometimes the, the necessity to, to think about it digitally and to think about how it can enable us to build on and, and do future work. So that's been... Um, it's been really exciting. Alex, you've written and talked about the real enemy, so to speak, being the operating model of government. What do you mean by that? I'm not going to bore you with a history lesson, but briefly, like the Internet's what, for citizen service delivery, 20 years old? We've imposed a lot of industrial age paper-based process on our Internet, right? Like if you carbon copy is CC and We've put a firewall around every piece of information to protect it when maybe we should be working out fully in the open. Like if you're a heritage ministry, if you're an environment ministry, why is the data not publicly available from the moment of creation? Like why are we imposing this kind of wonky business model of the paper industrial age on a digital one? And often the big challenge is that governments haven't shifted 
how they design services, right? They'll still think of, uh, let's put some bodies on this instead of put some data and some AI to it. Often the data is not released by default. It's kept behind a firewall, which creates security hazards, privacy breach hazards. We don't collect the information once. We collect it multiple times by department because that's the way it's always been because we didn't have the internet and data 20 years ago. And I'll go back to the, the CERB program, handful of rules delivered in four weeks, but if you look at how we've been managing EI for the last decades, it's just been a pylon after pylon of rules and modifications, never fundamentally changing the model of EI in the country, because that's a big undertaking. Like the point being is the, the actual operating model of government could need changes. Hillary, how do we start to break down some of those barriers to having a more agile, more data flowing approach to government? You know, to Alex's point, whenever I apply for something or start to fill out a form, doesn't matter which level of government. Why am I answering this question? Because I know the machine at the other end does know the answer to this question somewhere. And yet you're asking me to answer the same question repeatedly. At its heart about data, one of the problems, again, just to sort of go back to policy, is that we've gotten in our own way over time. You know, we've tried to be privacy protective and uh, we've gone so far that, at least in Ontario, we now can't share data between programs. You know, there's a, a law on the books that says if data is collected for a program, it can only be used for that program. So, you know, we went, in my opinion, a little bit too far thinking about privacy um, and not thinking about the common framing of, of interoperability. But we need to be able to step back, do a bit of collective user research, if you will, uh, especially now, because I do think, as has been mentioned a couple of times, that attitudes are shifting. You know, anecdotally, we hear all the time that folks are coming to Ontario.ca to understand uh, the situation with the coronavirus, to understand the numbers. So I think it's a moment where we really need to uh, ask ourselves and ask the public how we should proceed. I mean, the one thing that we're missing as well, so legislation is one big problem, but the other one is just new digital infrastructure. If you go to Estonia and they have something called X-Roads, which is kind of like their railroad of the industrial age, but for the digital age, where there's tens of thousands of businesses and other governments and people that connect to this safe highway to share data. And they also have digital identity, which is a big thing that we're missing in this country, both nationally, regionally, municipally. And that actually provides Estonians with a better sense of privacy protection than any Canadian resident can have today. Digital infrastructure is a term you've used a lot, Alex, uh, over, over the years. Help us understand what exactly that means, because probably a lot of people think that's you know wires and broadband. What do governments need to invest in now to get to that kind of Estonian level? You're absolutely right. If we think digital infrastructure, we think you know wires and mainframes. But what governments need to, in order to deliver digital first services is a new breed, a new set of infrastructure pieces that don't always have to cost billions, by the way. But for example, we go online without some form of national digital ID program means we're vulnerable to privacy or cyber hacks. It means it makes it really hard for governments inside and of government across departments to share data against an individual because that individual doesn't have a unique identifier. All of that sort of identity in the digital world is relying on either uh, industrial, well, is relying on industrial age components like passports or your credit card numbers or your your driver's license. You, you insert this industrial age piece of an identity and it digital world and they don't always compute. So digital identity is an example of the right kind of infrastructure that's needed. 
let me ask you, Hillary, if you think COVID is changing our view of privacy. I look at what's going on elsewhere in the world through things like contact tracing, very different approaches, and it's early, early, early days in this. But there seems to be a greater willingness among the public to surrender a bit of that privacy if it gets me to a better, safer place. I'll say I think we are seeing definite openness to using the tools we have to solve this crisis. And you know, when we've engaged with our privacy commissioner, the conversation really revolved around use what you need to build the tools to help us sort of understand what's happening with people, but be very clear about how the data is being collected. And I think that's really at the, the heart of this. And that might be at the heart of you know, how we need to, to frame some of the things we build going into the future as well. Because I, I don't think this is an either or proposition. You can have digital and you can be digital first and maintain your privacy. And that's on us, on the, on the techies, if you will, to, to do that. Um, and as Alex said, I think some of the foundational systems we need to put in place need to allow people to have transparency into that. Alex, what's your sense of whether people generally trust government with data as we go through this crisis? So two things to that. I think it's what you're going to do once you deploy new services that rely on that trust. And the other thing I would say is convenience and service has always trumped regulation and law. Probably a perfect example is Uber. Like People jumped on Uber because it was cheaper, better. They've maybe felt safer, but regulations and municipalities certainly weren't ready for this. I think we're in an age now where convenience and service that is tailored to an individual that they could get on the tip of their fingertips anytime they want will always outpace the traditional way of looking at regulations, laws, or policies. So we have to come up with a different model um, or accept that we'll always be behind as governments. Our governments have tremendous assets to bring to this crisis. They have good infrastructure, extraordinary amounts of data needed to do things in a hurry. The challenge, of course, is culture. There's different cultures in different government, in different departments, and we need to ensure that increasingly they have the culture of speed and user centricity that is required in the digital age. Our governments have made incredible progress in just a few short weeks to support Canadians during these unprecedented times. They've pushed out new programs and policies with lightning speed, largely by seizing on a digital first mentality. Oddly, the future of government may have arrived, but why did it take a pandemic to spark this kind of agility? And how do we keep that momentum and ensure that better, faster, smarter governments, digital governments, are able to take on the great challenges ahead? In the past, one of the great challenges has been the ability of government to take advantage of one of their greatest assets, data. It's the new oil, but when data is in the hands of government, too often it's like a heavy oil. You wouldn't use it for a race car or an innovative organization. Sometimes that's because of good reasons around privacy, but it can also be due to bureaucratic walls, political fears, or ancient IT systems. In this crisis, every government has discovered just how surmountable those barriers are. Yes, governments can change, and they can drive digital change. Question is, can they carry that into a post-COVID world? One of the things about this crisis is that it has brought forward by three, four, five years a lot of things from the future, and we're suddenly doing them uh, now, both as providers and consumers. 
Hillary, let me start with you getting a sense of what you think is going to be the new normal for government coming out of this crisis, and then how do we take advantage of that? The government's in the business of service and providing excellent service, and we need to be able to do more and more of that uh, for people wherever they are. And so there's a huge omni-channel opportunity coming out of this. So that would build great services, deliver them to folks wherever they are. Again, we do need to turn inward and look at the, the policies and legislation that enable that. We need to look at our procurement practices that enable us to do that quickly and effectively and operate maybe a bit more like the private sector in terms of kind of quote-unquote taking small bets so that you build something and you see if you're on the right track. And if you're not, yeah, we are able to scrap it and say that didn't work out. We need to try something new. Governments um, writ large haven't always been comfortable with that because in the end, it is not wasteful. It's actually prudent. We have to sort of think about all of the communications opportunities around that to reframe how we think about providing excellent service and what that means. And to me, being digital is not just about digitization. It is a whole mindset shift that allows you, sort of as Alex said, you know, we, we don't just need to put paper processes online. We did that for 20 years. We need to reimagine how we provide that service in a digital age. And I think we're right on the, we're in a perfect spot to be able to do that. Alex, you've published something called The Blueprint for Canada's Digital Economy, which has a number of interesting ideas, including the, the National Digital Identity Program, digital rights, basic connectivity, machine-enabled infrastructure, and increased computing power. I wonder how we get to that culture so that we have more than a blueprint, that we have a culture that takes advantage of all these opportunities. I think it's going to come down to leadership. I hate saying this, but because it's such a cliche answer, but it's so true. So if people from the top don't demand digital first, and if you don't also, I would suggest change the mix of people regularly at senior leadership levels, at even execution levels, and you don't bring in new ideas regularly, then you're just going to be stuck in a tailspin of the same ideas a lot. So, you know, the innovation rarely comes from within, to be honest. Like that's, I know it's, that's a controversial statement, but. And so if you're going to want change, you're going to have to get the right leadership and then getting the right mix of people from in and out of the public sector working on citizen issues together. That's when you start seeing the best results. You hear the phrase quite often, never waste a crisis. And I think that's because in quote unquote normal times, change is slow and sometimes painful. And I believe it's because people simply can't picture what you're putting in front of them. But that's why crises work. You don't have time for that. What I think businesses and governments have done over these last five weeks is show that there is absolutely a different way to get things done and the sky is not going to fall. You know, sometimes you just have to show people what the future can look like. And that's why this moment is so important. Alex, you've worked in government and now you're outside, but still connected with a lot of governments. How do we help governments be bolder? I think in a way it's by making government understand that simpler is better. It's easier to go down the path that's been paved, right? My recommendations would be fund smaller things, stop funding big things when it comes to tech and digital. And I know it sounds like such a small answer to a great big question, but like you start doing more of that and less of, oh, well, let's just design it, this program this way. Let's hire 500 more people because that's what government's always done. And you start forcing the different thinking, right? So find the small things, fan the flame, support it, fund them. Um, and make sure that the system doesn't squash those things. And then probably you get half a dozen amazing new things that happen per year. And then the momentum starts to build. Yeah, it's so simple, but true. Boulder does yeah. <laughs> not mean bigger. 
Hillary, how do we how do we ensure we don't slide back when we come out of this crisis? I think that's the million dollar question, honestly, and I think it really comes back to leadership to make sure that as soon as we are able to get back to some semblance of normal, that our old expectations don't kick back in. And it's more than an efficiency play. We have to come out of this thinking about how we use digital technology and digital culture to take on those epic challenges around us. We have to eradicate a virus. We have to rebuild an economy. We'll probably have to repair social scarring that we're maybe not fully appreciating right now. But I wonder how you think about how government and how digital government can help us tackle those challenges. Hillary, let me start with you. We need to focus on a few very simple things, I think. First is data. So whether that's APIs, application program interfaces, things like Estonia's X-Roads, information exchange platforms, I mean, whatever it is that allows us to use data to its full potential. I read a, a piece a long time ago about kind of almost this concept of invisible government. Simple things like not requiring people to file their taxes, because to your point earlier, we have all of that data. Why don't we just give them, here's our, our picture of uh, either what you are owed or what you owe. Do you validate this? They click yes or no. I think there are so many ways that we can take that mindset forward through this. We have to be keeping kind of standards and interoperability at the forefront of our minds. Platform approach, if you will, to government will be more important than ever, not only so that data talks between our services, but so that our services can talk uh, between jurisdictions as necessary. You know, connecting services from end to end, uh, from people's perspective. Uh, the only way we get there is through common standards and some of that plumbing that helps us get there. Alex, what does digital government in your mind look like five or 10 years from now? It's invisible as far as I, my personally, I think, at a state where citizens can just get government services from whatever platform they want. I want my EI payment. I can go through RBC because we've got distributed services everywhere and it's got the right digital infrastructure to support it, um, the right data sharing, the right laws. So it's invisible. Assuming we have the right connectivity, assuming we can release the right kind of data, obviously not personal data, but the, the right infrastructure to manage it, just like in other countries, um, you make government civil services invisible uh, because they're safe, they're secure, they're private, and you could choose to consume them wherever you want. That's what I see the future is digital government in the country and frankly, in leading countries around the world. There are five big takeaways from our conversation. Number one, distributed teams. They're key to finding innovative solutions. Governments love concentrated power. It's their DNA, but to solve the complex challenges, especially in a post-COVID world, they'll need to work with people and networks in every corner of the world. Number two, digital isn't a tool, it's a culture. Governments love to buy stuff, and yet every great advancement in the digital age has come out of an entrepreneurial culture. Third, data is key. Governments need to focus on a new approach to data and privacy if they want to keep pace with the challenges and opportunities that are all around us. That doesn't mean citizens need to surrender control of our data. We just need to be less inflexible in how we approach the deep lakes of anonymized, aggregated data that every government needs to solve a crisis like COVID. Number four, obsess with users. Governments tend to think like monopolies. 
Increasingly though, they're learning to think like lean startups that aren't afraid to test and learn from users. This kind of user centricity or client centricity is the most fundamental principle of a digital organization. And fifth, bold does not mean big. Governments no longer need size to deliver results at scale. They can use distributed teams, agile processes, and nimble partners who share in the results to make a greater difference in all our lives. One of the great things about Canada and Canadians is that we generally appreciate the role of governments. But as we move into the 2020s, governments at every level are going to have to move faster and be smarter in taking on every challenge that they confront. And they can only do that through digital tools and platforms. But most importantly, and this heartened me from talking with Hillary and Alex, they'll need a digital culture. It's time for our rapid fire segment. Fast questions, fast answers. Let's begin. iOS or Android? <laughs> I'm an iOS guy. <laughs> Same, iOS. Favorite social media platform? LinkedIn. Instagram. Favorite Netflix binge? I don't want to admit it, but Tiger King was pretty good. Uh, um, if you have to beep this, I understand, but I got to go with Shit's Creek. Be honest here, screen hours per day. God, a lot? Is that an okay answer? However many hours I work in the day, I would say. Ebook or paperback? Paperback. I'm a history grad. Ebook. Year of our first digital only election? Oof, 20 years from now. I'll go sooner. Let's say 15. The best part of the crisis for you personally? Being at home with my family because I spend a lot of time on the road normal. I'll say the same thing. It's actually, it's, it's got to be being able to walk downstairs to see my kids. Hardest part? Being at home with my family with four people in the house, I guess, the flip side. <laughs> I do miss FaceTime with my team, I think, once we're all able to go back to the office, even if it's just for a couple of weeks. When we're all allowed to travel again, where would you like to go? We have a family trip for Morocco that was planned in 2021, so I'd like to follow through on that. I really want to get my kids to Europe and just take the train around. Thank you for listening to RBC Disruptors, our ongoing conversation about innovation and how we can reimagine Canada's economy in this time of unprecedented change. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. Leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback. 